there's so much nonsense that we read about, hear about, hear from the talking heads about jobs, how jobs get created, what's happening to jobs, whether the unemployment rate is high, whether the unemployment rate is low. No one seems to connect the reality of the day-to-day -day life of people and the fact that paychecks and pay is not going up, even though unemployment, at least relative to previous years, is relatively low. And then you've got the fool in the White House who almost daily claims victory and claims ownership over things that are happening in the economy, particularly when jobs are declared saved. He claims those to be his victory and his doing, which is complete and utter bullshit. But that also clouds the picture about where the economy is going. One of the most startling things to me was the relative quiet or it was almost treated as a side story. A thing that disappeared from the news very quickly was the Federal Reserve's decision to raise the interest rates a quarter of a point. Now, raising interest rates a quarter of a point is not a massive deal. It's important to look at a time frame over the next year, how many times interest rates will go up. But I don't think people really understand the Federal Reserve's impact on the economy and on jobs. And frankly, the Federal Reserve Board has far more impact on the way people make a living, whether they're going to have jobs, whether they can buy a house or a car, far more than any president. So it struck me it was worth having a conversation about the Federal Reserve Board, the recent interest rate hike, and who better to do that with than Dean Baker, my friend at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dean has watched the Fed for a very long time and in general has done enormously important work on analyzing macroeconomics. And so I asked Dean to join me to talk about the Federal Reserve and a little bit about the trade deficit to kind of get a sense of what we should understand from both what the Federal Reserve Board did and the debate over the trade deficit. And Dean, one of the things that struck me, and you've written about this, and it's either fascinating, terrifying, or perplexing, is the way in which the decision by the Federal Reserve Board to raise interest rates recently kind of went by almost unnoticed. I mean, it was kind of covered and then boom, it was gone. And it's always striking to me um, how people don't really focus on the importance of what the Fed does. And so maybe first we should start because um, I think some of my listeners, and probably you've come up with this too, don't exactly know why the raising of interest rates is important. And so let's start with that. When the Fed raises interest rates, why do we care? Well, most immediately, the rate that they're controlling is an overnight rate that banks charge each other on borrowed reserves. It means nothing to any of us. But the point is that other interest rates tend to follow that. So by raising interest, this overnight rate, they're raising the interest rates that people are going to pay on car loans, credit card debt, student debt, mortgages, what uh, the bond rates that cities and states will pay if they want to borrow for infrastructure. So it raises a whole set of rates in the economy. And we care about that, of course, because obviously if it costs me more money to buy a house, I'm less likely to buy a house or I'll try to get a smaller house. And same story with cars and everything else. So I don't want to say, you know, the, they raised rates a quarter point. I'm not saying that that's going to you know, bring the economy to a screeching halt. But the point of that is to slow the economy and they just raised rates a quarter point in December. Again, same reason. They're likely to raise them again in June. So it's not that single quarter point rate, rate hike is a big deal. I think it was a mistake. But the point is, if they have a whole series of those rate hikes, then we do start to see a substantial impact on other interest rates in the economy. And that will slow growth. And particularly, I think it's fair to say that, obviously, this hurts individuals. It, it, to your point about people then having to pay more to buy a home, a car, but it also affects businesses' decisions about jobs, right? That's right. So businesses, again, if they see less demand, they're less likely to hire people. And again, this is part of the story. It's a big part of the story. The Fed is very consciously watching the labor market. I mean, by the way, none of this is conspiratorial. They say this. I'm not like you know trying to you know read tea leaves or something. This is all very open. So they're looking at the labor market. They're going, okay, we created I forget it was 230,000 jobs last month. That's a pretty good month. So they're going, well, we're near full employment. You know, and again, these are things that they say. So I'm not 
like reading tea leaves, uh, quite open. They think we're near full employment. 230,000 jobs is faster than sort of the the actual rate of growth of the labor force in the sense that how many people are turning 20 or 23, 25, whatever, entering the labor force. So it's faster than the rate of growth of the labor force, which means the labor market's getting tighter. They're worried the labor market will get too tight, and that's why they're raising interest rates. So they're worried that there's going to be too many jobs. And what you just said was very important because I think people don't know this, that the Federal Reserve by charter has two functions. One is to deal with prices, but also to strive for full employment. And how does the Fed define full employment today? And how would you define full employment? What should it be? What does that mean? Well, it's important to keep in mind there are different people on the Fed. So when we talk about the Fed, we're talking about its actions. But we have seven seven governors that are appointed by the president, approved by Congress, and they sit long terms, 14 years. At at the moment, there's actually four, only four of those seven positions are filled. But in any case, in principle, there's seven. And then you have 12 presidents of the district banks. There's 12 district banks around the country. Each has a president. They're essentially appointed by the banks in the district. It's a little more complicated than that, but it's essentially appointed by the banks in the district. So those are the people that decide policy on interest rates. And I should point out, of those 12 bankers, at any point in time, only five actually have votes. So they're all sitting there on the discussion. And, and some of them, actually. and some of them are considered hawks on this issue, and some are considered doves, and that's in their own terminology, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so they're looking at the economy and they're assessing where full employment is. Right now, the unemployment rate is four point seven percent. It's probably fair to say that most of those people think that that's pretty much full employment. Some think we're actually above full employment, meaning that we have more jobs than we should. That the unemployment rate should actually be higher. It should be something like five, five, one, five, two. <laughs> Others, you do have at least two people I could identify on the board who seem to think we could get a, a lower. I won't say substantially lower, but somewhat lower unemployment rate without having problems with inflation. What do you now, think? When I look at it, I think it's a mistake to focus on unemployment right now because we've had unusual development since the recession. We've had millions of prime age workers drop out of the labor force. And when I'm saying prime age, these are people 25 to 54. We're calling them prime age because few of them are still in school. By 25, most have finished whatever school they're going to have. And at 54, very few people have decided to retire. But the percentage of people in that age group that is working today is down by about two percentage points from where it was before the recession. And if we go back to 2000, it's down by about four percentage points. That's over four million people. And to my view, I think it's really implausible that so many fewer people want to work today than in 2007 or even more compared to 2000. So I think we could have a lot more employment without you know inflation spiraling higher. So you know, their concern, the concern at the Fed, and I'm not saying there's no justification for it, their concern is, oh, we're going to get back to where we were in the 1970s, we'll have double-digit inflation. We don't want that. That's a real issue. But what I'd say is we have a long, long way to go, and the risks are very small. We don't. There's no plausible story that we just, you know, we go a little too far, and then the inflation rate just jumps from, you know, currently we're under 2% by their key measure, and suddenly we're looking at 8 or 9 It doesn't work that way. So to my view... We have very little risk by, you know, not putting our foot on the brake. Let the economy keep growing. Let the jobs, let more people get jobs. And if we start to see issues with inflation, we could always raise the interest rate down the road. And it it feels like, to your point about their target of 2% and what's really happening out there with inflation, it's so low, and that it doesn't just jump from all of a sudden to 7 or 9%. It feels like this is almost like ideology and knee-jerk way that they've always worked and the way they analyze is not looking at the real world. And I actually caught this quote by William Dudley, who's the president of the New York Fed, and therefore, I believe, on the board of governors almost automatically. Am I right? The New York Fed has an automatic he's seat. Voting. He's not the, on the governor, but he's a voting member of the open market committee that decides interest rates policy. And he was quoted, you you know this famous um, analogy that the Federal Reserve acts as sort of the chaperone that takes away the punch ball at the party before the party gets going. Now, I always thought that was kind of bizarre in and of itself because the fact that people have jobs and that prices are going up or the people actually employed and making money, you know, it's not a party. It's about just trying to make ends meet and survive. So he was quoted as saying, 
and I'm quoting, I don't think we're removing the punch bowl yet. We're just adding a bit more fruit juice. And this was in a speech that he gave in Florida. I just found that so bizarre and almost out of touch to what, to your point about what the reality is. Yeah, you know, you often hear kind of euphemisms. I shouldn't say kind of. You hear euphemisms rather than saying we're keeping people from getting jobs. And uh, I've had discussions with people, and they think I'm, you know, again, being conspiratorial. Now, again, if we had Mr. Dudley here, my guess he wouldn't like to use the word I'm keeping people from getting jobs. But if he'd heard what I had just said, I really doubt he would dispute anything I had just said in there, you know, so he right. understands. He's not obviously always an economist. He understands the way the economy works. If we raise interest rates, we're slowing growth. Fewer people are going to get jobs. And also an important corollary to that is this is about wages as well, because we know in a tight labor market, workers are able to get higher wages. You could tell your boss, look, I want a pay increase. If not, I'll go across the street. Well, if it's a tight labor market, you could do that. There's a lot of unemployment. Your boss will say, whatever, do what you want. I'm not giving you, you know. So it's not just jobs, which, of course, is hugely important, but it's also wages for an even larger group of workers. And to your point, you know, just to underscore that, I think that using that language, that almost neutral language or opaque language is uh, it may not be intentional in a sense, to your point, consp not conspiratorial, but had he said, my job is to make sure that you don't get a job or this actual action is going to reduce the ability of people to get jobs, you might have massive demonstrations on the part of people who all of a sudden will realize, wait a minute, what the fuck here is the Federal Reserve doing to us? Yeah, I think the Fed works largely outside of public view. Again, not they're hiding. It's just that most people don't know what it is. They have terminology people don't understand. If people understood how important the Fed was and what its policies, the, the impact of their policies on, on their day-to-day -day lives, that so they're keeping people from getting jobs, my guess is there'd be a lot more interest and probably uh, more political pressure for them not to raise interest rates. And more pressure potentially on Congress to exercise far more intense oversight of what the Fed does. That's right. Congress created the Fed. Congress has responsibility of oversight for the Fed. And here, too, there's a very, very interesting dynamic because there's come to be, particularly more among Democrats, I'll say, than among Republicans. I mean, Hillary Clinton said this during the presidential campaign, that it's inappropriate for a presidential candidate, because Donald Trump had said something, it's inappropriate for a presidential candidate or a president to interfere, I, I forget whether he's, she used the word interfere, but to comment, I think was the term, on Fed, Federal Reserve Board policy. And again, I'm not picking on Clinton particularly because a lot of politicians hold that view. Uh, um, uh, Robert Rubin, who was Treasury Secretary under uh, the first Clinton, under Bill Clinton, said exactly that, that it's totally inappropriate for, for politicians, in his case at that point he was sec uh, Treasury Secretary, to comment on the Fed. It's as though this was a church that you know we shouldn't right. be interfering with. Right. And I, I, I just don't understand that. I mean, this is a very, very important uh, function of government, uh, setting interest rates, can in effect, controlling the level of employment. And I, I'm sort of sympathetic to saying, okay, we don't want Congress to micromanage in the sense that we don't want the members of Congress to say, okay, raise rates today, don't raise them tomorrow, lower them next week. Fair enough. You know, I, I would agree with that. On the other hand, I, I see the analogy with the Food and Drug Administration. They certainly should be exercising oversight. And if you envision the Food and Drug Administration goes five years and doesn't approve any drugs, well, then I think absolutely Congress should be saying, what are you, what are you folks doing? Either there were no drugs that were safe and effective in the last five years, or conversely, they're approving drugs and people are dying left and right from the drugs. Then, of course, Congress should intervene and say, you aren't, you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I'd say it's the same with the Fed, that they should be monitoring the Fed, and if they see that it looks like we have a higher unemployment rate than need be, and there's no evidence of inflation, by all means, they should be calling, you know, calling members of the Fed, the Fed chair, and other members, and saying, uh, "What is it? What 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 are you trying to do with your policy?" And right, and I, I have always been very skeptical about this complete nonsense about the quote-unquote independence of the Fed. And let's understand the Fed, as we just spoke a, a few moments ago, it's 
run by bankers. And so bankers like to have their own quote unquote independence because they don't want the people, meaning in theory, the members of Congress to tell them what to do. We've seen that not just as it relates to the Fed, but on Wall Street, they basically think that they know best and they want to make as much money and run the economy in the way they want. But it's it's nonsense. We have to have control over the Fed in a much more active way. Yeah. 12 of the 19 people who are sitting there deciding on interest rates are essentially appointed by the banks. And even the seven governors, again, there's only four sitting there now, they're appointed through the political process, appointed by the president, approved by Congress. But even those people, they very much are in touch with the financial community. So the idea that it's inappropriate for Congress to spoil the party, that's a little hard to see. And people should read uh, a lot of what Dean has said about the Fed in the past. And of course, his new book is called Rigged, as I mentioned in the introduction, how globalization and the rules of the modern economy were structured to make the rich richer. A nice short title, huh, Dean? Um, well, Rigged is short. I know, but you got the whole the whole subtitle. And you can find that at DeanBaker.net. And also, I, as you were talking, there's obviously the classic book, The Secrets of the Temple by Bill Greider, which I think is a useful book book to read too. People really want to get into it. It's a big book, but it's uh, probably one of the good books about how the Fed is run. Um, let's shift um, a little bit now to something that's very important that you've written about as it relates to jobs, and that's the trade deficit. And one of the things that struck me and that you've really focused on is the way in which people are trying to deny, and when I say people, politicians, uh, people who run the economy, uh, business people, a lot of the economists, the talking heads, they are trying to deny that the trade deficit had an effect on employment, which is kind of nonsense, right? Yeah, and it's it's, it's kind of bizarre because you can have serious arguments. I, I know a lot of economists, you know, I've had serious arguments with them about was NAFTA good policy, was putting allowing China into the WTO under the conditions we did, was that good policy? The perfectly reasonable things to debate. But to deny that the trade deficit has cost jobs, and particularly the trade deficit with China has cost jobs, it, it just – this is – you know, I make the comment. It's Trumpian. It's, it, it, is, it is simply untrue. Now, it doesn't mean a trade deficit always costs jobs. And again, I know economists will do this, and it's kind of double talk because you can point to situations where you have an economy that's very robust, near full employment. Take the economy in 2000. And – in large part because the economy is growing so rapidly, that contributes to the trade deficit because what it means when the economy is growing rapidly, we buy more of all things, including more imports. Clearly, that was partly what was going on in 98, 99, 2000 as the trade deficit grew. But when you got to later years after the, we had a recession in 2001 um, and the trade deficit kept expanding, um, clearly that trade deficit was responsible for a reduction in demand in the economy, reduction in employment. And when economists deny that, it's just it, it's not being honest. Again, you could still argue it was the right policy. You could make those arguments, but you can't. You're simply denying truth if you say it didn't cost jobs. When we're talking about the trade deficit, are we talking about it coming out of the bad trade deals, or is this just an outside of trade deals, the movement of products and the way in which companies move production around the world? Well, again, there's been, to my view, kind of a effort to obscure these issues, they aren't strictly separable. Now, you have a trade deal like NAFTA or, again, admitting China into the WTO. I've had people tell me that wasn't a trade deal. I don't care. I mean, there's no point in having a semantic argument. I mean, clearly, because China was admitted to the WTO, they were more able to sell goods to the U.S. There's good research showing that a lot of our trade with China, our imports from China, directly followed in their admission to the WTO. So, do you want to call it a trade deal? I don't really care. I mean, the point is to have a discussion. How did that impact the economy? And something like NAFTA, that led to a lot of uh, manufacturing moving to Mexico. That wasn't the only reason there was manufacturing moving to Mexico. So in a counterfactual, if we hadn't done NAFTA, would we have manufacturing move to Mexico? Probably, but almost certainly not as much as because we did have NAFTA. So I don't think they're completely separable. We we would see some of what we're seeing now, even without NAFTA, even if China hadn't been admitted to the WTO, you'd have seen companies taking advantage of low-cost labor in the developing world, which would likely increase our trade deficit. But it was almost certainly made worse by these trade deals, which, again, in the case of NAFTA, was pretty explicitly designed to make it easier for U.S. companies to to, to shift manufacturing to Mexico. 
So why the dishonesty? Why do you think that there's a dishonest debate coming from particularly the elite media and certainly companies about the effect of the trade deficit? I think they want to obscure the matter because basically they don't want to take responsibility for what really is a very bad story. If we look uh, what happened to manufacturing workers in many of the communities across the Midwest in the last decade, in uh, Indiana and uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, some of the other areas, uh, the, the industrialized states there, they don't want to own up to the fact that our policies contributed to that. It wasn't just kind of a bad thing. This wasn't like Hurricane Katrina just striking and, you know, what can you do? There's there's a hurricane. This was our policy. And I think they're doing their best to, to deny that to not own up to it. And Trump made, as you well know, you follow the campaign very closely. Trump made quite effective use of that in key states by saying NAFTA was a bad deal. Now, I pointed out when I debated Republicans, particularly on TV, that anybody thinking that Donald Trump was going to be this stand-up guy for regular workers was smoking pot or just denying the reality. But he did make rhetorically an effective point that basically gave words to what people are feeling about what we're talking about now. Exactly. He said, you know, these were stupid trade deals. We had bad negotiators. China got the best of us. Mexico got the best of us. He's going to have smart people. And I mean, literally use these terms and they're going to get the jobs back. And just about every part of that was nonsense because none of these people are stupid. I've met some of them that don't strike me as stupid. They're very hardworking. They're reasonably intelligent people. I'm sure all of them. Um, but And they didn't strike bad trade deals. They got what they wanted. It wasn't that the Mexicans outsmarted them. They wanted to make it easy for U.S. manufacturing companies to locate jobs in Mexico. That was what they were trying to do. They weren't outsmarted. So just about everything Trump said in that is a line. Of course, he has no way to bring the jobs back. I mean, there are things you could talk about doing. You won't bring back the same jobs. You could bring back some manufacturing jobs. But it's not clear that he even has a clue. Um, so he certainly lied to these people, but he was – responding to something in the world. They had really been hurt by trade. So they were not being stupid to think they'd been hurt by trade. They had been, and that was trade policy. Right. And to put it another way, look, uh, companies get what they want because it's not they're not looking out for the national interest, whatever that means. And they're not looking out for workers. They're looking out for corporate profits. So they negotiate exactly what they needed, even if that was bad for the factory worker in Indiana or Michigan. Exactly. Again, they're interested in cheap labor, and that's what they wanted out of these deals, and they got it. So the fact that uh, workers here lost their job, that that wasn't stupidity. They they went into these deals with uh, the trade negotiators, went to these deals with a specific agenda, and they achieved their agenda. And part of that was leaving a lot of people here unemployed. I mean, not that they're saying, okay, we want these people to be unemployed, but the point was they wanted to get cheap labor. Just a few days ago, I had the honor of being the keynote speaker at the Larimer County Democrats annual dinner that's in Colorado in Fort Collins. And what I wanted to do in that keynote address was not just feed the attendees. There were a couple of hundred people there. I think there were 250 people there. I didn't want to just feed them the red meat of attacking Republicans and Donald Trump. That was too easy to do. I used the opportunity to really take on the Democratic Party, and in particular, two issues. One, the myths that too many Democrats spread about the economy and about our system. And in my view, that those myths have been promoted by Republicans and Democrats, of course. But those myths are in some way very central to the reason that people don't understand what's happening in the economy. They don't understand what's happening in foreign policy. And so it mostly mystifies them and gets them angry, certainly at the Democratic Party. And I also wanted to talk about one of my favorite themes, the myth of American exceptionalism. I combine those two themes in a critique of the Democratic Party, asking the question, if the Democratic Party really wants to be part of the rebellion and lead the resistance, or if it doesn't, it has to understand it will not be the majority party. So give a listen to the speech. It'll be up in a video soon, but I thought this might be of interest to my listeners. And please do provide some feedback on the ideas and the points I made in this speech. 
So I come tonight to sort of mull over some ideas with you and frankly some challenges about the party and the future of the party. And this is not simply a conversation that I want to have and raise some ideas about winning the next election. And I want to start by saying that I am very optimistic about what lies ahead and the incredible opportunities that we have to change this country and make it the progressive place many of us want it to be. And I have felt this way long before the horror of the general election, going back to last spring, even before the Democratic Convention, where I was proud to be a Bernie delegate. And F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And here's what we confront today. The first idea is that Trump and his bigots, his billionaires, his climate change deniers, and frankly, his incompetent people have already done and will do great damage to our country. They are going to hurt millions of people and they're going to damage the planet. But the second idea is that there's great energy and more energy than I've seen in my adult life. And I've been doing politics since I was your age. I've been doing politics a long time and I have not seen the energy for progressive change in 30 or 40 years. And in my travels, across the country, speaking, as James mentioned, as a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders, one of the great honors of my life, I met the most incredible people. From Iowa to New Hampshire to Wisconsin, Nevada, California, Florida, and they all came out for one reason, to change their communities and feel a sense of power over the future. And many of them told me they had never been involved in politics before. Never. Or they had given up many years ago. Those are the people we must keep in the party. Those are the people we have to welcome into the party. Those are the people who should be in charge of the party in the coming years. Now, over those many months, and right up to this very moment, we turned righteous anger into great action, the Women's March. And just in the past weeks, I should say in the Women's March, I was in New York City, you could not move in the streets. It was jammed. Every side street was jammed. You could not move. And just in the past few weeks, thousands of people turned out in rallies all across the country to defend health care. We poured out by the thousands to stand up to the first racist travel ban. And there's no question in my mind that the legal decision that came down in the court would never have happened if thousands of us had not turned out in 24 hours. I went to JFK, John F. Kennedy Airport. If we had not turned out and packed those airports, we would not have stopped that racist travel ban. Because as good as a person is, as good as the Attorney General in Washington is, as good as, good, as good as a person he is, he's a politician. And if there had been silence, if we had sat back meekly and submissively, I doubt he would have put his neck out. So that is a lesson to us, that we cannot stop turning out, objecting to racist travel bans, to the kind of actions that are being taken by the government. When we turn out, we can win. But I also know that lots of people are frightened. And being a member of organized labor, I've met and I know lots of those frightened people in Ohio, in Michigan, in Wisconsin. They feel that what they have believed in their whole life is coming apart. That if you worked hard every day, and you did your job, at the end of the day, you could come home with a paycheck in your pocket 
and that paycheck would pay for basic needs. Among millions of people who are integral, integral to the fabric of our communities, who are neighbors, immigrants, people of color, they fear an era has dawned in which their own government is a daily threat to a safe existence. That's where we've gotten today in the United States of America. But the optimism in me says that that fear is driving the most incredible rebellion in this country. And it is a rebellion that has burst out in the last year or so, but it's really been a rebellion that's been building for a very long time. There is no debate. The people know it. Our economic system, a system that has consistently robbed the people of their wealth, has failed the people abysmally, and it must be replaced. Our foreign policy, a foreign policy that has caused death and destruction over many decades, has cost the lives of so many people, including young men and women serving in our armed forces, and poisoned the way we relate to the rest of the world. That foreign policy has been an abysmal failure and must be replaced. And our justice system, which allows black men and women to be shot down in the streets, to let billionaires and fraudsters, who sometimes get elected to the White House, <laughs> lets them get away with crimes. That justice system is an abysmal failure and must be replaced. <laughs> now, the simple question for the Democratic Party, and this goes back to the old union days, and you will know what that saying is, which side are you on? Is the party willing to be the opposition, not just an opposition party, but opposition to an unfair economic system? Is the party willing to stand up for the people who are the victims of corporate greed and police violence? And will the party stand for peace and justice around the globe? If the party is willing to do that, the people will be with the party. The people will revolt. They will be with us. But if the party is not willing to lead the rebellion and the revolution, it will not be a majority party. And when I speak about rebellion and resistance, I don't speak just about the rebellion and resistance against Donald Trump. Our problem today is not something that the insiders, the elite consultants, can solve with new polls and new documents repeating warmed over familiar strategies about turnout and targeting, because all that has caused the Democratic Party to lose power over the last decade. What we face is a crisis of morality and vision. And honestly, I didn't come here really to talk mostly about Republicans. I'll mention it a little bit. Here, I want to have the conversation among Democrats. Our message cannot be focused on waiting for the failure of a man who is mentally ill, who is a cheat, a sexual predator, and a bigot. Once he's out of office, hopefully sooner than later, what will we as a party have to show the people? We are spending way too much time on a guy named Vladimir Putin. And we're not having an honest discussion about something that is clear to me. We lost this election. Vladimir Putin did not spend the last 10 years putting two-thirds of the nation's legislatures in Republican hands. Republicans who, for the first time in history, control every state house in the South and have a historic majority in the House.
And we didn't lose the election over things we did in the last year or two. This has built up over many years. And I feel, and I hear this all the time from my Democratic friends who are obsessed with Putin, I feel that that has conveniently masked the failure of our party. And it's allowed the very same people, the consultants, the super PACs, the lobbyists, not to be held accountable for what has happened to our party. Millions of people do not support our party. And millions just don't bother to vote. You all know that. So what is it? Why? Now, the conventional wisdom is that we have bipartisan paralysis, that the parties won't work together. The truth is that we have bipartisan acceptance of some basic ways our system is set up and how our country is run. And unless we confront those systemic issues, we will not win, and more importantly, the people of this country will continue to suffer. So let's be honest, because we can be honest among friends. Under Democrats and Republicans, the rich have gotten richer and robbed the people. For sure, less under Democrats. The greatest divide between rich and poor that exists today did not appear overnight. It took four decades to orchestrate that robbery. Under Democrats and Republicans, we have maintained an almost permanent war economy, taking from our schools to make more weapons of war. Yes, Trump wants to increase the Pentagon's budget by $54 billion, which is 80% of the entire budget of Russia for its military. But Barack Obama's last Pentagon budget was $551 billion, a quarter of a century after the fall of the Soviet Union, when we all sat around and were promised the peace dividend. For 40 years, people all across the country worked hard, hard, hard. These are my union brothers and sisters. So hard that the minimum wage today, if you took into account productivity, should be $20 an hour. $20 an hour. Not the $10 and 10 cents an hour that the Democrats offered a few years ago, which would still keep a family of four in po poverty. So it wasn't a surprise that people didn't pour out of their homes when Democrats were arguing for $10.10 an hour, when that really would not make a substantial difference in people's daily lives. In the Democratic Party platform, which I was proud to be part of moving and pushing, we now have a commitment to $15 an hour. That would not have happened had there not been a primary debate in the Democratic Party. And it is absolutely true that we have now probably the most progressive platform in the Democratic Party in my lifetime. And that's to the credit of both Bernie Sanders and Secretary Clinton. Now, in my occasional role as a TV talking head, I have to go on CNN sometimes and fight with these, you know, people that just don't make sense to me, but I do it. I spent the last few weeks doing my duty, blasting the Republicans for their immoral attempt to roll back the Affordable Care Act, which would leave millions uninsured and eviscerate Medicaid and rob Medicare and give big tax cuts to rich people and to drug companies because, you know, they need those tax cuts. But my friends, Democrats, Democrats have fumbled the health care fight for a quarter of a century. We've been left today to defend a health care system, the Affordable Care Act, which delivers billions of dollars of new profits to one of the most obscenely corrupt 
and wasteful industries in America, the insurance industry. Why do you think those bastards were out there running TV commercials supporting the ACA and wanting people to enroll? Because their executives have to have a way to pay for their tens of billions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars in pay. But if we were truly an opposition party, not to mention a party that asked to have power to represent the majority, we would be in the streets today organizing millions of people. We would shut down the country, demanding that we kill the insurance industry and that every woman, man, and child gets Medicare from cradle to grave as a right. That's what it means to be an opposition movement and an opposition party. Because every poll shows that people support Medicare for all. Why the hell is our party not leading this uprising that the people want? And that's because our party has, some in our party, have advanced very powerful myths. And any rebellion, part of what a rebellion does is it changes the language and the conversation. And so here are some myths that I want us to consider because I think our goal as activists, our role as activists, is to challenge these myths and to think about these myths as we knock on doors, as we make phone calls, as we run for offices as good Democrats. Myth number one, business people are the most important job creators and we should bend over backwards to worship them and give them tax breaks that bankrupt our communities. This is utter rubbish. That myth though has given license to this band of pirates to lay siege and pillage this country for over 40 years and too many people in our party have allowed that to happen. The truth, it is the tens of thousands of regular workers who are the engine behind the success of every business, and they are the ones that end up creating more jobs. And what we Democrats, the party of the people, should say to every business is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said many years ago, long before you were born. No business which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. No business that doesn't pay its workers a living wage should exist in this country. And then to businesses we say, when every one of your workers has a good paying job and benefits and a fair right to have a union, and you stop robbing the corporate till to fund your big pay packages, then come to us. We'll think about those tax breaks. That posture on the part of the party would make us the voice of the majority. Myth number two, taxes are too high. The truth is, if you look around the world at it actually advanced economies and strong democracies, our taxes are too low to do what is needed for the people of this country. The problem is, and I know you know this, that the rich don't pay their fair share. And Democrats have been too meek in demanding that the rich pay much higher levels of taxes. And I mean much higher level of taxes. And in fact, too many Democrats, going back to Ronald Reagan, have voted for foolish, immoral tax cuts that have bankrupted our country. And when we fail to make the case for taxes, we are left gasping and people blame the government for failing them. Oh, when we don't have money, we can't serve them. Myth number three, I know you're going to love this one, that there is a social security crisis. Now, I hate to break it to the talking heads, and unfortunately, some of my Democratic friends, social security is solvent 
for years to come. And if we simply demand that the richest pay their fair share to Social Security, this is one of the things that I was most proud of Bernie Sanders when he campaigned. He proposed that we remove the cap on Social Security to make rich the rich pay far, far more. That will make Social Security even stronger for decades. But we need to, at least those of us who believe in this idea, we have to get Democrats to stop repeating the false line about a Social Security crisis and this idiocy about the need for entitlement reform. It's complete, I know, I don't think there's anybody under age, it's complete bullshit, okay? That's a technical economic term. And if we did this as the voice of the revolution, as the voice of every senior, everyone would be with us to demand that we actually expand Social Security benefits. That offers a vision that people can embrace. Myth number four, that there's a fiscal deficit crisis. And that's even a fact that Barack Obama, who I have deep respect for, he bought into that. He was the one that created that what we used to call the Cat Food Commission. And that was the commission that was set up to look at entitlement reform and raise some taxes. And we called it the Cat Food Commission because we said that if it ever implemented the things that it decided, seniors would have to actually eat cat food to survive. There is no such thing as the deficit crisis. In fact, there's, we need to invest more money in our country, not less. Now, every election, we get people out to vote. That's what all of you in this room do an amazing job and work very hard at doing. And after the election, what do the people see? They see more concentration of power and less liberty. They see more corporate money flowing into the political process. While people have been enraged that billionaires and corporations are buying elections, our own party, at its recent national meeting in Atlanta, I was there, voted not to impose a ban against corporate donations. Are you kidding me? Did the people in our party not hear the voters and the people and the outrage that they are expressing that their democracy is being bought and money has polluted the system? And it's because people spend half their waking lives going to work in a place where democracy is withering every single day. And they come home, as I said before, to contemplate these paychecks, which are getting smaller and smaller, smaller. And they are waiting to hear a voice in the party say, no, we will not stand for that. They also are waiting for a party to say and to explain that democracy is not just about voting. It's making sure that people have certain rights inalienable rights, the right to education, to decent pay, to pensions and health care. And if we think of those rights as fundamental to daily life, what is the greatest threat to our democracy? It is not ISIS. It is not Putin. Say it. There it is every single day. It's corporate power and greed. They are the enemies and the central threat to the rights that we hold dear. They are the greatest threat to our democracy and our country. And we have to say this in a full-throated way every day to the voters, because the voters know that. That's what they experience every day. And I'll say it again. The facts are very clear. Our economic system has failed the people. Now, the party can hear this revolt and stand for a very different economic system. Or it won't be the party of the people. Now, the last thing I want to mention is the final myth that is probably the hardest myth and the most untouchable and most difficult one for us to address. And that is the myth of American exceptionalism. <laughs> one of the things that Bernie Sanders did in the election if you listen to him long enough throughout the campaign, is he challenged the idea of American exceptionalism, explicitly or subtly. And I was very proud of him when he did that. He was subtle about it, 
He didn't beat it over the head. But when he talked about health care as a right, he stated a fact. This country is the wealthiest country in human history. Not because of some divine right or greatness or chest pounding or bragging, but as a fact, as a fact that calls on us to act humanely and make sure that everybody has health care as a right. He spoke about his parents as immigrants, as a way of embracing all immigrants, not in a language of, aren't we so great that we should do the humane and normal thing and let people into our country. He was also the only national candidate in my lifetime who had the guts to stand before the country throughout the campaign and in two national debates. And rather than glorify militarism, he talked about the various countries in the world where the US, using the CIA, had overthrown democratically elected governments. It was to say clearly to the people that to change, we have to be very honest about who we are, to look deep inside and see the consequences of our policies. And that is a conversation that I want to urge us to try to have, not that everybody or one person has the exact solution, but we have to have this conversation. Today, American exceptionalism has allowed many people to say, what Trump is doing is against our values because we believe that our values are special. But when we say that, it clouds the long history of values that we do not uphold in this country, from the rule, from the rule of law to equality under the law. If you are a black man in America today, you have not lived this great ideal of equality under the law because too many people in your community have been shot down by police or racially profiled. The rule of law does not apply to the rich and powerful on Wall Street and our politicians do not hold them accountable. These are the people who steal from us and are never brought to account or to justice. Conservatives and liberals from Donald Trump to Robert Reich, boast that we have, and you've heard this before, the best workers in the world. Barack Obama said so much in his early State of the Union address. When he was arguing for these terrible free trade agreements, he was telling us that the way to win the future was to pass these free trade agreements because American workers were the best. Now consider that boast and how that appears around the world, that we have the best workers in the world. It has deep-seated nationalism and racism and questions the quality and worthiness of workers everywhere who are as smart and as skilled as people here. But more important, it clouds us to the threats that we face, which are not from workers, not from the competition of workers. The threats we face are from big corporations racing across the globe, plundering the planet, and exploiting people of all races. And that we have the best workers in the world gives the wrong message to people here about who the enemy is. The people in Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, who turn their backs on the party, they have been the victims not of foreign workers. They have been the victims of big corporations. But in the last election, their fear was turned against them, partly because they did not see Democrats with a clear message and a clear vision about who the enemy was. American exceptionalism is used every day to tell people that we have the greatest, most dynamic, most open economy in the world. You've heard that probably a thousand times. In fact, the economy is every day run more like a kleptocracy, where laws protect the rich and the powerful, people like Donald Trump, who succeed by defrauding 
and cheating people. American exceptionalism has meant being the largest by far seller of weapons around the world, including to regimes like Saudi Arabia, which treat women as second-class citizens. It has meant we have the biggest military in the world, justifying endless war for economic benefit and becoming the police force of the world. Now, questioning American except exceptionalism lets us understand how the country became the wealthiest country in the world and at whose expense, which actually helps us talk to the people we need to bring into the party, white working class or any worker, because we can then say to people that the Democratic Party wants to have a humane alternative to this abysmal economic system, which you know is called neoliberalism. Our party, to truly be a voice for the majority, to be part of the rebellion underway, to lead the revolution, must be the spirit that defines a different idea of America and a different idea about the country's place in the world. There are millions of examples of what that means, but here is the one that today I cannot get out of my mind. I want a party that I belong to that says, we are spending billions of dollars every day on war around the planet. And yet right now, today, for $1 billion, which is a rounding error in a $4 trillion budget, we could save 4 million people in Africa, including over a million children who are in imminent danger. And when I say imminent, I mean in the next two to three months of starvation. And so as a democratic party, let's stop with the search for spies and wiretapping and hacking and demand as a nation that we pay attention to this moral obscenity and act to save these people. These are human beings. Let there be no mistake. Every single day, I am proud of the things that happen in our communities. And I am proud to be here with you as a Democrat. And there are plenty of those that we can hold up as examples of the right things to do. We should celebrate those examples. The people that go out to organize unions, they are something to be proud of. They do that for very little money. They battle for people who work hard every day to get a decent paycheck. The people who stand up to bigotry are to be honored and celebrated, particularly today, the activists of Black Lives Matter and in Muslim communities who persevere, resist, and challenge the imagery of white nationalists and bigots who occupy the White House and the seats of power. The people who organize for a healthy planet, who put their liberty on the line, who are willing to go to jail to stop pipelines because they value something greater than profit and greed. The people running for office. <laughs> the people running for office who seek to do better for our communities are something to be proud of and boast for. We can be full of pride, and yes, we can boast about the legions of people who are demanding a world where we stand for values held by people all around the world. Let the revolution begin. Thank you very much. As usual, it's time for our Robber Baron of the Week. And this week, our Robber Baron is the chairman and CEO of Peabody Energy Corporation, a man by the name of Gregory Boyce. 
Now, Boyce has had a five-year compensation package totaling $85 million. And in the last pay period, his total compensation was $30 million. $13 million of that was from stock gains. And only $1.1 million, of course, I'm laughing when I say only, only $1.1 million was from his salary. As you can tell, everything else was in stock gains and in other benefits like pension benefits and so on. Why am I choosing Boyce as the robber baron of the week? Well, Peabody Energy Company went into bankruptcy. And just recently, a federal judge approved its Chapter 11 plan to come out of bankruptcy. And as part of that bankruptcy settlement, get this, taxpayers are going to be socked with a huge bill to clean up over two dozen hazardous sites that Peabody owned. Those are sites that have been polluted from lead and zinc mining. Peabody arranged to pay only 2% of the $2.7 billion in environmental liabilities that federal, state, and tribal authorities, a lot of the land, polluted land, is on Native American land. So although the company is legally obligated to clean up these sites that are related to coal mining, what it's now doing is putting off all these environmental liabilities for a really small cost to its bottom line. And of course, what happens when the company saves that money? It goes right into the pocket of Gregory Boyce. So that's why Gregory Boyce is our robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guest, Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And Dean will be back with us frequently because he's so good at talking about the economy. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. And please do subscribe to the podcast. And of course, we'd love to have you as a financial sponsor. You can do all that at the workinglife.org website and just click on the podcast tab and that'll show you both how to subscribe and how to become a financial supporter and look forward to having you back next week.